Well, we approach tonight the beginning of a series of articles that pertain to the doctrine of justification, that is how we're made right with God. And so we begin naturally, pardon the pun, with the doctrine of original sin. So let's, um, let's read this together and, and then uh, continue on through our notes tonight. Original sin stands not in the following of Adam, as the Pelagians do vainly talk, but it is the fault and corruption of the nature of every man and woman that naturally is engendered of the offspring of Adam, whereby man is very far gone from original righteousness and is of his own nature inclined to evil, so that the flesh lusts always contrary to the spirit. And therefore, in every person born into this world, it deserves God's wrath and damnation. And this infection of nature remains in them that are regenerated, whereby the lust of the flesh, called in Greek, oh, this didn't show up in my PDF print, phronema sarkon, which some do expound the wisdom, some sensuality, some the affection, some the desire of the flesh, is not subject to the law of God. And although there is no condemnation for them um, who believe, who believe and are baptized, yet the apostle confesses that concupiscence and lust has the nature of sin. Okay, let's, uh, let's move on to our first point tonight. Pelagians are vain. We read that original sin stands not in the following of Adam, as the Pelagians do vainly talk, but it is the fault and the corruption of the nature of every man. Now, Pelagius was a figure from uh, the 4th century, early 5th century. He was British. He later, he later spread around through um, across Rome and uh, into, uh, into the Middle East, but he, uh, he was British. British theologian who, who did, <laughs> didn't do uh, uh, didn't do well uh, theologically, um, and uh, he got into fisticuffs with Augustine. He read he read in Augustine's Confessions what Augustine thought about the doctrine of man vis-a-vis his depravity, his sinfulness. And Pelagius says, "Wait a second, that's this is all wrong. Augustine's got it all wrong." And he Augustine and Pelagius had this dialogue back and forth. And uh, Augustine pounced on him and uh, whooped him <laughs> soundly. And uh, uh, Pelagius was, was um, shortly after condemned at uh, the Synod of Carthage. The problem, however, is that Pelagius's legacy lived on. And what Pelagius has taught to varying degrees continues to surface at the church, and his ideas lap at the shores of the church always. There are many Pelagians in the 21st century, even as they were Pelagians in the 16th century. So you'll notice that the parenthetical reference there in the article, as the, it's not as the Pelagians did talk, but it's as the Pelagians do talk. Even though Pelagius was condemned, his ideas... They live on. Um, so here's here's the we don't have a lot of really his uh, his writings with us. We gather what he taught through 
what was written against him. And the Synod of Carthage uh, outlines the propositions that they condemn. This is 411. Here are some some of the things that Pelagius taught. Number one, Adam was created mortal, he taught. That is, Adam was going to die whether he sinned or not. So uh, everlasting life wasn't, wasn't properly, didn't properly belong to Adam or to Eve. He was going to die, number one. Two, the sin of Adam ha- harmed Adam alone. That in no way did Adam's sin affect his, um, his posterity. Those who followed him were not and are not affected in the least by what Adam had done. The only way as Pelagius has it, that Adam's sin affects those who follow him is by those who imitate him. This is why, if you look at the article again just above, original sin stands not in the following of Adam. The problem isn't that we're copying a bad um, role model. That's not the problem. The problem is, is a systemic disease. This, by the way, is how, how the reformers consistently think of sin. And you, we need to think about sins in two ways. There's the, there's the acts of sin. There's the instances of sin. My envy, my anger, my doubt, all these things, my instances of sin. Those aren't the fundamental problem. <laughs> the fundamental prom- problem is the systemic disease. The instances of my sins, all those things are just the boils the, 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 the warts on my skin, the, the effect of the disease, the problem is much deeper. It's the systemic disease inside of me. And that's how the Bible thinks about sin predominantly. The fundamental problem is a, is a disease. Here we read, we read uh, the word infection. There's an infection that's going on, and it's systemic. It touches every part of us. Well, Pelagius just didn't believe that at all. He thought that that everyone who's born uh, is born with a clean slate. And that we have the opportunity to uh, act well before God. We have a will that's utterly free to follow God. That's and this is this is Pelagius is the father of free willers, right? He's the, he's the father of of, um, of those who think that we have free will. The Reformed tradition, the Anglican tradition, teaches us, and we'll get this uh, very soon, the will is bound. Sin has bound the will. It cannot act in love for God. It can't do it. There's no way. <laughs> it's stuck. In fact, it's so bound that it's dead, and so dead that it's bound. Um, Pelagius taught differently. We have free will. If we want to, we can respond to God. We can love God. We can seek God. All these things. Okay, so Adam's sin doesn't affect his posterity. Three, the law leads to the kingdom as well as the gospel. <laughs> you can listen to, you know, the gospel invitation is, is um, really no better at bringing people into the kingdom as the mandates of the law. We can, because our will is free, because we can respond to it, we can hear those Ten Commandments. And as we talked last week, not only the Ten Commandments, but all of the exposition of the Ten Commandments, which the New Testament represents. The New Testament is one grand exposition of all that the Ten Commandments means, of loving God and loving our neighbor. 
because we are free, says Pelagius, uh, the, the law that comes to us is as effective as bringing us into the kingdom as is the, the gospel invitation. Um, and so he really confuses the law and the gospel. Now, remember what Luther says about law and gospel. The most important thing to a theologian, he says, is distinguishing law and gospel. If you can't distinguish the law and the gospel, you're, 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 you're lost. You're hopeless. Um, and the law, from a reform perspective, we don't need to rehearse this. We talked about this last week. But the law, the law exposes our sinfulness. The law exposes the disease. The law leads us to Christ um, and, and shows us our need of him and how, how um, we are to live. The law cannot save us. It cannot redeem us. Um, number four, before Christ, Pelagius taught, there were human beings who lived without sin. <laughs> there is not one, no, not one, right? There is, there is none righteous, the Bible says, no, not one, except, except for all those people before Christ who live without sin, says Pelagius. So he would look back probably at a number of uh, individuals, perhaps in the Old Testament. We can think of very saintly characters. Right. Pardon me? Enoch. Enoch, right? Walked with God. I'm sure that Pelagius would look at Enoch and say, yeah. He used, um, he used David too. Yeah, that's very uh, difficult to understand. Uh, <laughs> David is one of the most wicked ungodly guys that you can think of in the Old Testament. He's got a, he got a bad heart. A man after God's own heart who's, who's a terrible father. He's a terrible husband. It's, it, it's, it's no wonder why, why Michael despised him so much. He was a bad husband. He was, he was, um, he was a bad friend. So bad he just kills his friends to get their wives. And, um, and he, he, uh, he doesn't teach people to follow him very well. And so his, you know, his, his son, his son Solomon, um, uh, collapses, just, just fundamentally collapses. It was quoting a psalm, and they have a saying that David sees himself with blamelessness, and so there's this category of... Yeah. So it's, it's, um... It's without reason and without um, any any gospel, uh, biblical precedent that he thinks this, but he did think this, um, and uh, I think that we need to be careful. Uh, we'll talk about. I'll ask you maybe how some of these things surface in today's church. But we tend to we tend to all of us do think about. We we tend to be Pelagians in a way as to kind of elevate people and to think of them as saints and to revere people as saints and 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 we're not to listen to Paul. When he says, I, I'm, I'm the worst of them. And when Paul says that, it's not just rhetoric. Like, he really means it. Like, don't look at me. Like, like um, Dick Lucas, the, the, that Anglican preacher, used to say, if you, if you knew it was in my heart, you wouldn't listen to a word I said, uh, I'm saying to you. You wouldn't listen to me. Um, not that preachers should, um, uh, you know, should disclose themselves. Naked preachers are distracting, as, I, as I've heard. Um... <laughs> Before Christ, there were human beings who lived without sin. Newborn infants are in the same state. This, is, this, is follows, this follows a number of these. Newborn infants are in the same state in which Adam was before his transgression. Peshaw, some of us say, 
But on the other hand, what have most of us been taught? Oh, the innocent little baby, right? They haven't you're learned to sin yet. They don't become sinners until they reach the age of accountability, right? That, that magical phrase that's somewhere hidden in the Bible. It's like, find Waldo, right? Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Oh, it's not there. <laughs> there is no age of accountability. Remember who God killed in the flood. He killed everybody except for the innocent babies. Oh, wait a second. No, he killed them all. He killed the babies too. Because all of them were wicked in his sight. And we have to come to terms with this uh, if, we, if we want to believe biblical teaching about sin and humanity and if we want to, to adhere to our Reformed tradition. All humanity, there's not one righteous. No, not one. Except for the babies. <laughs> they have the disease. They have the disease of, of uh, even though it's not, the, the act is not there, the, the disease is present in the child's heart. Gosh, that would change the way that many of us think about parenting, I think, if we actually believe that. Psychology says that within the first week, a baby learns to fake cry. To fake cry? To, fake cry. to deceive. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> desperately <laughs> wicked. That's what I talked to one of my friends Deceitful above all things. When when you you read the confessions by Augustine, where he goes on and on and on about how wicked he was as a baby, and it's one of the things that the world just can't come to terms. What is he talking about? How can he think that? Um, and it is it is astonishing as a parent when you and certainly you know. A baby at one week is very early, but even when you see your two-year-old, they just know how to lie. They know how to be selfish really, really well at two. Um, And uh, no one has to teach them that, right? They don't have to teach them how to do it. They just know it by nature. Number six. The whole human race does not die through Adam. And a chosen humanity does not rise through the resurrection of Christ. And so, in, in um, essence, Christ's resurrection does nothing to lift up humanity, even as Adam's sin does nothing to bring it down. Now, these are extreme, right? And so what we tend to call manifestations of this in today's world is semi-Pelagianism. We, we bandy this term, well, that's semi-Pelagians, at least the reform. At least the Reformed tend to do it. The, the Arminians never quite know what to do with this word of, of Pelagianism, um, in my experience at least. But the Reformed tend to call them semi-Pelagianism. But where do we see some of this? We may not see it in this extreme form, but we do see this kind of teaching. Where do we see this kind of teaching in our in our present ecclesiastical world? Well, decisionism. Decisionism. You can choose. It's up to you whenever you want. You know, part of the part of the the, the, the terror that ought to seize a an individual at the moment of gospel invitation is that is that this moment that I'm experiencing right now, where I I, I sense my will being exercised to give itself to God, that time may not come back. 
that the, right now I am under the exercise of the Spirit of God. He's graciously moving me. And if I don't respond, that may not be there in the future. Now, of course, that, that, that brings up all kinds of other theological questions. But the, the sense is that the sinner needs to feel themselves in the hands of God. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. They're in his hands. And it's not up to them to choose. And if they, if they sense God moving, then now is the time for salvation. So yes, decisionism, it's up to you and you can do it whenever you want to do. If not now, then you can do it later because it's in your power. Uh, and it's important that the church regains its ability to articulate the sinner's helplessness before God. It's not in their power. Where else do we see, where else do we see Pelagianism uh, rear its head? I think in evangelism, um, the call to share the gospel with that innocent tribe across the world, because they right. can sometimes be portrayed as these people that have never heard about Christ. Right. <laughs> yes, they're, they're these, uh, these uh, virtuous pagans. And uh, have you ever heard the, the, the sermon? It's called uh, Ten Shekels and a Shirt by, by Paris Reedhead. Well, you ought to listen to this sermon. It's, it's one of the most famous sermons online, Paris Reedhead. He was, um, he was an alliance minister, but one of those guys, one of those alliance guys that the alliance, I won't say anything, one of those alliance guys that are, like Tozer, not necessarily read very much. And uh, he has something to say about these innocent natives who are running around in, in rank rebellion against God. They hate God, and they hate his ways. And he was a missionary, and he went to them, and he thought he was doing them this great service and bringing them the gospel until he realized that they didn't want the gospel. <laughs> they didn't want the God that he was preaching, and they were monsters of iniquity. Um, and so, yes, the, this idea of, of the, the innocent pagan who just hasn't heard the gospel, and that's the problem, right? The problem is that they just haven't heard. But Paul says very clearly in Romans is, is that all know they're all responsible. They all know through nature alone and through conscience that God is God and that judgment is coming upon their sins. Um, but they don't, they don't want to hear it. Um, so, so, yeah, that's, that's, that's good. Where else, anywhere else that we see Pelagianism or semi-Pelagianism? We see it in the cults, for sure. Mormons and the Right, in, in, there, in that you can, you, can, you can do, it's, it's do-goodism, yeah. working your way to salvation. And, uh, and we, find this, we find this right in the evangelical church, right? We find this in the evangelical church, too, when the emphasis from the pulpit is not on sin and grace, but it's upon, here's some great ways, here's how you can live, here's how you can be a better neighbor, how you can be a better husband, how you can be a better wife, how you can be a better student, you know, let's bring in a life coach and let's just teach about being better humans and all this horizontal stuff of being better. It's just do-goodism rather than the biblical message of it's always the same. Repentance towards God, faith in Jesus Christ. I think it would be the, the seedbed of legalism, just like you're saying. It is. It is this is legalism, right? It's, 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 it's the law. Yeah, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And wherever we find wherever we find in the church a lack of emphasis on human corruption and uh, uh, emphasis on on you can do it, you can do it, you can, you can, rah 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 rah, then you get you get semi Pelagianism in one form or another. Um, wherever we don't feel the weight of the disease, and we're so happy for the cure, who needs Jesus? 
who needs him unless you feel desperately sick? Um, and I think that's, that's what we need to work on. When, when Paul talks to Titus, when he writes to Titus, and he describes the state that we are in, you know, hating one another, hating yourselves, we, um, it, it's, we're, we, we were devourers of each other. Um, and we can ask ourselves, you know, Paul, was it really that bad? Like, Paul, come on, Paul. I mean, are people really that bad? And then you listen to Jesus, who looked deep into the human heart, and he tells us what he sees there. <laughs> right? What does he see? It's, does he see anything good when he, when he describes what comes out of the human? I, I am, I'm so always boggled by this. When he looks at, he, deep into the human heart, remember Jesus wouldn't trust himself to anyone. He wouldn't trust himself to man because he knew it was in the heart of man. And he looks in there, and he, what's, what's coming out of the heart of man? And he rattles off all these things. Not one of them is good. There's not one good quality that he rattles off. It's just corruption coming out. Um, and uh, so this is, a, this is a problem for us today too, semi-Pelagianism. Um, Pelagius did not understand sin. Okay, number two, naturally engendered is enough for us to know. Sin is naturally engendered of the offspring of Adam. It comes... It comes through us by nature. Now, many, many theologians and lay theologians have tried to determine exactly how does it happen. Augustine went a bit too far with this, um, and others have too. How does the act of, of procreation transmit this disease of original sin? Is it the act of procreation? Is that the problem? Is it linked somehow to that? What, what is it that brings it... To us, Well, I like what both Perkins, one of the greatest Anglican and Puritan theologians, and Archbishop Usher, another Anglican, say about this. Perkins, the propagation of sin, how it comes to us, is as a common fire in a town. Men are not so much to search how it came as to be careful how to extinguish it. Don't busy yourself worrying about how it's transmitted. Just get rid of it. <laughs> Deal with it. And uh, Usher says the same. We are not to be so curious in seeking the manner how, but this we may safely say, that what effects the committing of the first sin wrought in the soul of Adam, the same does the imputation of it work in the souls of his posterity. We are as as, um, defaced and as destroyed as Adam was as we come into this life. And we'll talk about that uh, now. So I'm not going to get in because Perkins and Usher forbid me to think about how it's transmitted to us. And I think they're wise in saying so. But it is transmitted in its equal force. Nothing less. Three, far gone means far gone. Whereby man is very far gone from original righteousness and is of his own nature inclined to evil so that the flesh lusts always contrary to the spirit. So now, um, some have taken this very far gone to mean that there's just a relative distance from original righteousness to the state of, of the loss of original righteousness, which is original sin. So original sin means the loss of original righteousness, which was Adam's inheritance as a newly created being and Eve's. What is, the, what is original righteousness? Look in the quote, quote just below. The loss of original righteousness equals the loss of the image of God. 
the loss of holiness. Now, the best theologians understand that the image of God is God's holiness. That is what we lost in, in the garden. What is holiness? Thomas Goodwin puts it the best I've ever discovered. What is holiness? Holiness is a disposition to be for God, even as God is for himself. See how that more wonderfully describes holiness than, what is, what is holiness? Well, holiness is when I do this. Holiness is when I, I take care of my neighbor. Holiness is when I say my prayers. All these things that we do. Goodwin says that's not the essence of holiness. Holiness is being for God. As God is for himself. Because God is for himself. He seeks his own glory. He seeks his own honor. He delights in himself. In the person of his trinity. He delights in himself. And the person who is holy is for God in that way. Who delights in him. So, in the perfection of Eden, the human soul, reason, will, and affections, the, the ability to think and to perceive, the ability to act, and the ability to do so feelingly, um, in, in Eden, the human soul was, was fixed on God as its chief end. Reason knew that God was the best thing in life. Reason was able to tell a perfectly obedient will to act for the best thing in life. And the will in partnership with the affections was able to, to, to express great fervent love for the best thing in life. That was what's, that, that's the kind of the essence of holiness, being fixed on the chief good. This is, by the way, the Westminster Confession. What is the, what is the chief good in life, right? To, um, the chief end of man. Yeah, exactly. The yeah, which is as much to say to be fixed on God as the chief good, right? Is to glorify him, to honor him as the chief good, to, to enjoy him as the chief good. Reason knew that. The fall, once Adam fell, that orientation was lost. The compass lost its true north. The compass loses its true north. Reason no longer knows what its chief end is. What does it make as its chief end? Itself. Will, the will, therefore, no longer knows what, how to act. The emotions no longer know how to feel. Passions go just awash everywhere. Feelings go awash everywhere. The will is running hither and thither, acting in all kinds of ways, but not towards its chief end. And reason, the intellect, is utterly futile. Remember what Paul says in Ephesians uh, in Ephesians, that we should not go on in the... And he characterizes what the Gentiles' thinking is. Do you remember that phrase he uses? Vanity the vanity of their minds, or the futility of their thoughts. The, the Gentiles, the unbelievers, are absolutely futile, not because they can't build bridges, or do great works of art, or, or invent marvelous and wonderful things, or do great works of, of you know, the milk of human kindness. But because they don't know the right end of those things. And it all becomes self-serving. <clears throat> and so when it says here that, that man is very far gone from original righteousness, what it means is that it's lost its compass completely. And its nature is always inclined to evil. Now, does that mean it's always inclined to rape or to theft? No, 
but it's always inclined to seeking itself as its own chief end. Humanity understands itself. Sinful humanity understands that the best thing in life is developing humanity. It's Star Trek. As much as I love Star Trek, that's Star Trek. It's it's humanism, right? And you find it, you find it everywhere. Did I see it most recently? This, um, oh, it was the 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 um, the film, uh, uh, the Interstellar. Interstellar was a hymn to human development and to what we will become. We will become as gods. That was the whole film, right? Well, this is the fall, right? This is the fall. You will become as gods. And Eve all of a sudden understands that God's not her chief end, she's her own chief end. Um, so we've lost, humanity loses the image of God. When Calvin talks about the image in his institutes, he uses the words of complete defacement, utter loss and ruin. He doesn't use half measures. So I know I'm, I'm repeating myself here, but where the articles say man is very far gone... It means far gone. Like it means way away. Like so far, you can't see it anymore. It's far, he's far gone. Oh, he's just far gone, right? There's no coming back. That's what it means. It doesn't mean it's just far. <laughs> it means it's a complete loss here. This is the language of Calvin. Um, and uh, now, does that mean that the image is, is lost, is um, lost in other respects? The image with respect to holiness is lost. The image with respect to the substantial soul is kept. That is, that as mankind, humankind is created in God's image, intellect, will, predominantly. That is, we reason, we think like God does, we act like God does. The substance of that image has been kept. But the image with respect to holiness, the more important image, has been fundamentally lost. Um, if we lost the substantial image of our soul, we'd cease to be human altogether. We would, um, that, that was retained. Holiness was lost. Without, so when, when the Bible says, without holiness, no one shall see the Lord, without regaining the image of holiness. New birth is being made holy. Conversion is regaining the image of God, whereby God becomes our chief end. And you know, many people go to church, they listen to sermons, they sing, they clap, they take the Lord's Supper, and they've never had that new birth experience whereby God becomes their chief end. He's the most important thing for them. Um, so it's important that when we, th- when we think of conversion, it is, the, it is the donation of holiness. That's what it means. Without holiness, no man will see the Lord. It's not, Josh, you better get up earlier tomorrow to pray. Because <laughs> if you don't, you won't see the Lord. But if you don't have the image of God in your life, you can't see him. It's impossible. No matter how many church services you go to, you cannot see God. Um, Now, let's continue on. Um, Far gone means far gone. For God is angry with the wicked every day. And every person born into this world, um, that sin deserves God's wrath and his damnation. Now, before I go on, let me just read, let me just read um, a couple things to you about the state of the human soul before God. This is from Calvin, Calvin in book one of his Institutes. 
This is what he says. He says, For a veritable world of miseries is to be found in mankind, and we are thereby despoiled of divine raiment, holiness. Our shameful nakedness exposes a teeming horde of infamies. Each of us must then be so stung by the consciousness of his own unhappiness as to attain some knowledge of God. Unless we first come to grips with the teeming hordes of infamies, which is the loss of holiness, we we will never really aspire to God. He says, therefore, again, we cannot seriously aspire to him before we begin to become displeased with ourselves. Isn't that a great a great line? In, 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 as we think about original sin and how how it how it affects church life, you cannot seriously aspire to God unless you really begin to be displeased with yourselves. But you know what happens in church circles? It's stroking the congregant. It's just making you feel better about yourself. <clears throat> Your best life now, Josh. Right? It's it's uh, you're, you're you're you know. <laughs> Now, lest you think that this is this is just Calvin, and I'm I'm kind of importing something into the Anglican tradition. This is the this is a book of homilies and canons. This is the uh, these were really the sermons written by our, our reformer bishops to teach us <coughs> uh, how to believe. And this is what it this is what how um, I love this. The Holy Ghost in writing the Scriptures. What is the what is he doing? The Holy Spirit in writing the Holy Scriptures is in nothing more diligent than to pull down man's vain glory and pride, which of all vices is most universally grafted into all mankind. What was he out to do most specifically, the Holy Spirit, when he wrote the Bible? To pull down our high thoughts of ourselves and to make us to feel the, the strength of our disease. And then, it, and then they, they, yeah, he goes on here to talk about where we are. We are, we are of ourselves but crab trees that can bring forth no apples. We be of ourselves of such earth as can bring forth weeds, nettles, brambles, briars, cockle and darnel. Not that I even know what cockle and darnel are, but they sound not good. They, there's nothing there. You can try to produce fruit, but you cannot uh, produce fruit no, no matter how, how hard you you tried. So this is this is not this is not um, importing Calvin. This is genuine uh, Reformed Anglican doctrine here. Far gone means far gone. Uh, we are we are always lusting against the Spirit in our flesh. Fallen man is always lusting against the Spirit. God is angry with the wicked every day. In every person, okay, this is, I've, I've kind of backtracked here. In every person born to the world, God, it deserves God's wrath and damnation. We read in the psalm that God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Now, it's right and important for us to, to uh, wax eloquent on the love of God and the mercy of God. He delights in mercy. It is right to preach that God so loves the world, but it is wrong for us not to emphasize that every day God has this holy indignation that his commands are being spurned by his creatures. 
angry with the wicked every day. And if you'll take any little time to read through the New Testament, you'll notice that there's an awful lot of emphasis on judgment. It's throughout the New Testament. I shared this with our prayer group the other night, but when, when um, uh, Paul is um, talking about how the whole of Asia, right, the, whole, the whole church of Asia departed from him. They abandoned Paul when they needed him. Um, there, was, there was one guy who pursued him and who found him and who tended to Paul's needs while everyone else everyone else uh, forsook him. And Paul says, may the Lord have mercy upon his soul on that day. Because <laughs> Paul is always thinking about the judgment day and he even thinks about it when he's thinking about his genuine brother in Christ. How often have you prayed for your brother or sister in Christ that they, they would find mercy on the day of judgment? You know why? Because we don't think about the day of judgment anymore. It's, it's, been, it's, it's like we've, we've opened the airlock in space and it's been sucked out of our space station. We've closed the door and it's no longer in our, in our talk. It doesn't even occur to us to think, to pray for our friend. May he find mercy from the Lord on that day. It doesn't occur to us as it did to Paul that evangelism is primarily fueled because we're so terrified by the judgment day. Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Felix, I know that I say this a lot. Felix, what should we talk about? Let's talk about righteousness. Let's talk about self-control. One more thing, Felix. Let's talk about the judgment to come. It's coming. There's a judgment day. And this is what, this is what Paul says. At the, he keeps saying it. He, the more you read it, it's always on Paul's lips. What does he say to the to the the philosophers of the uh, on the Areopagus? Right, he's 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 inviting them in. He's talking about he's talking about um, uh, philosophy with them and about groping to find God and in Him we live and move and have our being. And then he says, God's patience has run out, and he calls you to repent. Why? Because he's appointed a man to what? to judge the nations. It is always there. And we need to regain a sense of the judgment day of God, the doomsday. It's coming. And we will all stand before God. And we will all render to God our deeds that we've committed in our bodies in this life. We'll be held to account for every word that we've said. Like, you just want to just, Lord, just help us to get back to what Paul was about. And... Um, the, uh, the articles help us to understand that wickedness and sin is so very offensive to God that his wrath is going to be released one day and his damnation is going to be, uh, is going to be fully served. Yeah. So a lot of my life, especially doing evangelism, I've been told to like, pray for those who do not know Christ yet and pray for them. Mm-hmm. So under this mindset, should we not be praying for believers, I guess, more so? The whole like... What I'm confused about is like being taught a lot that like once you're saved, you're always saved. All you have to do is like repent of your sins. That Jesus' yeah. is, like death was for like not just our past sins, our present sins, and our future sins. Yeah. What is the like line of like understanding every moment, every day? So yeah. Your life in sin and 
when Paul talks about Onesiphorus, right, brother in the Lord, like he's he's the real deal. Paul, Paul, uh, I, I don't think Paul had a real high opinion of people. I don't think he trusted them. Yeah, like what does he say again in Philippians? He's talking about about Tim- Timothy, right? He's a great guy. Everyone else, they all seek their own. They preach the gospel. I got one guy, Tim. He's great, right? The rest of them, they're smarmy. They they're fake. They they may be preaching the gospel, but they they're, they're selfish. And so so here's an Esophorus. He's the real deal. He's like Timothy, right? He's 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 fervent in heart. He he's identifying himself with Paul's gospel. He doesn't care what other people think. The whole church of Asia, right, runs away. I can't imagine. The whole church, Paul says, has abandoned me. We think of the early church as being this great, like, let's get back to the early church, right? They all abandoned Paul. Um, but, uh, you know, Onesiphorus, um, he, he's the real deal. And still, even though Paul knows that, that God will complete that which he's begun in Onesiphorus' life, even though he knows that the Lord will be faithful even when Onesiphorus is unfaithful, that, that those whom he's called, he will justify. There's that, that string of events, certain, right? Even so, he has this vision of the judgment day, and I, I, I feel that we're just so far removed from it that we, just, we, don't, we don't understand it anymore. Like we have, None of us have any idea what Paul's talking about, about the judgment day, because we haven't been taught it. For years, if we've ever been taught it. Like, I don't know if I've ever really sat under a sermon and be made to quake in my boots because there's a judgment coming and, and I'm so terrified by it in a, in a godly, <laughs> hopeful way, but still kind of like... Um, so anyways, he, he knows that Anessa Forrest's salvation is secure and yet he still prays that the Lord would have mercy on him in, on that day. How those two things come together... I, I just feel that uh, I'm not completely sure, but I know that they do need to come together and that we need to explore this more. And we need to be a people who are concerned about one another for the judgment day. Like we need to, we need to be, I need to be concerned for my brother Jim, my brother Chris, and all of us, I need to be concerned for the sheep that it goes well with you on the judgment day. Um, because not everyone who's... Um, you think of it in terms of, you know, on that day, we're all going to be filled with all the fullness of God. Right? That's the promise of the gospel. That's the promise, right? What does the gospel give us? The fullness of God. Well, take a thimble, right? And fill it. <clears throat> fill that thimble, and it says to itself, I'm full. I couldn't even want anymore, right? I don't want anything else. Take a vat and fill it. And it says, I'm full. And I wouldn't want any more. But one has more, even though both are perfectly content. And we, we can't let go of this idea that there is a day of reward. And there's also a day of, of, uh, of mourning, in a sense. You know, we will look upon him whom we have pierced. Um, and I, I think, folks, if, um, if I might speculate just a little bit, that... For some of us, on that day, we're going to wish we'd lived life differently. 
One life to live will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. And we're going to think of all the stuff we did that just meant nothing. It's just the day of judgment is coming. That's the, that's the gospel. That's Paul's heart. All this other stuff, it doesn't matter. And, um, and I think that, that when we, we um, <clears throat> you know, the, the, um, in terms of this, God is angry with the wicked every day. When we rightly ponder the uh, extremity of God's anger on that day against the unrighteous, we have no idea, right? We, we bandy these terms about, we talk about, you know, God's going to punish the, the wicked and the sinners. And we, again, like hell's become kind of a, um, yeah. God is going to unleash the full force of his anger in a way that he's never done. And it will go on forever and ever and ever. And, and you know, we can talk about, you know, <laughs> well, you know, and, but you read the Gospels and uh, the, the, the torment that shall know no end. Um, and I think that we need to get back to just taking these things at their word and having a holy fear about them and looking at our neighbors. Yeah, looking at our neighbors, our, our unsaved folks, and seeing it. What their lot in life is like, you know, like it's it's the the ferocity, the, the ferociousness of God, His hatred of sin, just roaring and and eternally destroying. And it's hard for us. We've been so kind of nursed on our humanism. God can't be like that. God couldn't do that. But the Bible says He's going to do it. He's going to he's going to to um, damn them. He's going to damn them if they will not listen to the voice of his son. Um, and so we we do need to I think pick up our voice as a church. You know this is the God's beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. And you know Baxter used to say Baxter used to say why would people listen to your gospel? If you don't really seem all that concerned about their salvation, why would why would they, why would they really care? But it says the man, like Baxter says, I preach the dying man to dying man. The person who really feels deeply that they're going to be lost if they don't come to Jesus, and we don't know who the elect are. We don't know. That's not our place. Every person that we see that doesn't know Christ is a person that may be found. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, and that's anyone that we go to. We can just apply that promise to them. You're a person. If you call on, on the Lord's name, you're, you will be saved. Um, and I think that if we begin to feel deeply for these people and have a looming sense of the judgment day, I think that it will affect our evangelism. Um, yeah, the world doesn't need the world doesn't need people who um, are like you know what if you respond to Jesus or not, I don't care. They don't need that. They need Paul, knowing the terror of the Lord. We beseech them, be reconciled to God. What are you doing? Judgment's coming. You can't go on and live like that in your, you know, in your, um, your uh, refusal of God and, uh, and be safe. You're not safe. Come into the ark. Uh, 
So uh, that's, that's, that's an important thing for us to think about. God is angry with the wicked every day. A lifelong infection. The, the article says this infection, this disease of nature, the systemic disease, remains in those that are regenerated. It doesn't go away. We are forgiven, but it doesn't leave us. I like these two quotes by Calvin. Number one, ours is a holy calling. It demands purity of life and nothing less. But then he says this earlier on in the Institutes. No one in this earthly prison of the body has sufficient strength to press on with due eagerness and weakness so weighs down the great number that with wavering and limping and even creeping along the ground, they move at a feeble rate. Let each one of us then proceed according to the measure of his puny capacity and set out upon the journey we have begun. No one shall set out so inauspiciously as not daily to make some headway, though it be slight. Therefore, let us not cease so to act that we may make some unceasing progress in the way of the Lord. And let us not despair at the slightness of our success. For even though attainment may not correspond to desire, when today outstrips yesterday, the effort is not lost. Only let us look toward our mark with sincere simplicity and aspire to our goal, not fondly flattering ourselves, nor excusing our evil deeds, but with continuous effort striving towards this end, that we may surpass ourselves in goodness until we attain to goodness itself. But we shall only attain it when we have cast off the weakness of the body and are received into full fellowship with him. That, to me, represents the great realism of the Christian faith, that we do make progress in this life. It is about holiness, but because we are fighting the systemic disease that doesn't go away, (laughs) it's a slow and painful process. And it seems often like two steps forward, one step back, sometimes three steps back, four steps forward, um, or whatever it might be, this dance that we do. Um, but we, we, we can't expect at any point that the, the fight's ever going to stop. The moment we think that we've, we've kind of, we've, we've kind of um, put one sin away and we're kind of done with it, that's where we get in trouble. <laughs> Whew. Over that hurdle, we are making progress. We are being sanctified, but it's a constant fight. This is where the, the Puritans are so helpful in their, their doctrine of, um, of a mortification. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta fight. You gotta, it's a fight. What was that? Said mortification. mortification. It's putting to death. Um, and it's always, it's always, a, we all, we're always distrusting ourselves, right? That one of the greatest Christian vir- virtues is we don't trust ourselves. You don't, you don't trust yourself. Self-deception is the worst kind of deception, and we are constantly deceiving ourselves. My goodness, we can, we can convince ourselves of so many things. We listen to self-speak, right? There, there's the, our self. It's our self. And our self is constantly lying to us. Why? Because it's infected. It's a zombie within us. And it, 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 uh, it eats our own brains, right? Uh, we have a, a zombie within. The flesh is lawlessness. The lust of the flesh is not subject to the law of God. Um, I don't want to go, we, we're, we're running late as it is, I've, I've been long-winded here, but um, the, 
the articles understand sin as anim, as as uh, anime, as as uh, lawlessness. It's fundamental lawlessness, and I think the more I read the New Testament, the more I understand this is the nature of sin. Um, that it, it it simply does not love the essence of God's law, the soul of the law, which is what loving God more than anything else. Right, that's the essence of the law. It's it, when you ask you, what's the essence of the law? Loving God more than anything else. And uh, sin is against that fundamentally. <clears throat> I love beer more than I love God. I don't, but I tend to. I love food more than I love God. I love film more than I love God. I love to watch TV more than I love to pray. Why is it that it's so hard to pray? I mean, what is it? Why is it that when you we are invited into the presence of the majesty of God to experience communion with God, why do you just feel like this? You just feel it. I don't want to do it. It's because we have a principle in us that hates God. It's against Him. And um, it's, it's just self-love. It's the opposite of loving God is self-love. It's the loss of the compass. And this is Thomas Goodwin here. What is flesh? Professedly it is this. It is self-love in the height of it when a man hath nothing in him but love of himself. It is the bottom of original sin if you study it a thousand years. Self-love. Right? It's the loss of the compass. Original righteousness, God's my chief end. Original sin, I'm my own chief end. It's self-love. I love myself too much. Whoever believes and is baptized. Now, um, <clears throat> there's no condemnation for them that are believed and are baptized. I just want you to notice quickly that uh, the writers of the articles make sure to join these two things together. And I just wanted to say a, 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 a slight word of exhortation that we can tend in the evangelical church to dismiss the importance of baptism. It's just, it's just not that important. It's like this thing that we want, for when we don't, we tend not to see it that often. It kind of falls by the wayside. Um, but we think it's just something you do, and we don't know really what to think of it. Why is baptism important? We tend not to think these things through in, in the lower church. But just read these three, these, these three verses here. Acts 2.38, they ask, what do we do to be saved? Peter's, Peter's answer is very clear. You must repent, and you must be baptized. Every one of you. That's what you must do to be saved. Uh, Mark 6.16.16, 16, whoever believes and is baptized, will be saved. Baptism, says Peter, which corresponds to this now, saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, that baptism is doing something through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't want to go into this. I certainly don't want to say that, that baptism, kind of ex opera operato, by the nature of its working, saves anybody. But I just want to say that the way Scripture talks about baptism is it brings it very, very closely to the, the working of God's salvation. And we need to develop a better understanding of the importance of baptism. It's not unimportant. And if there's anyone in our circles that professes Jesus and isn't baptized, we really need to press the importance of it upon them. Because it's very clear whoever believes and is baptized. So if we have 
Christians that are Christian and baptized, you should be pushing them too. You should be very concerned for them because the Bible's concerned for them. Sounds good. Yeah. Um, at the very least, at the very least, we should be asking ourselves, if you're a follower of Jesus, why wouldn't you want to be baptized? What, what, remember what the uh, Ethiopian says right away, as soon as he's born again? What hinders me? What hinders me from being baptized? That's like his heart wants it, right? He wants it. Um, as soon as Paul, as soon as the scales fall from, the, fall from his eyes, Ananias goes and he, he baptizes him. Um, so I think that we should be concerned for those who, who are finding reason not to be baptized or think that it's unimportant um, because Scripture says it, it is very important. I only believe in science. I only believe in science. Yeah, then it's... Uh, well, I think a big thing is like like I was taught that or was taught that baptism was uh, like a sign, no word sign to the community as a proclamation of your faith. Right. So those like like uh, like I came to faith when I was like thirteen, and I get baptized when I was nineteen, and the yeah. whole time I was following God. But yeah, um, it wasn't until I was like, okay, no, like I want to live my life this way. Like this is actually like yeah a thing. I want to like pursue that more than anything else. That yeah. The problem, a couple of problems with viewing it like that, when, when, um, when the Ethiopian eunuch is born again, he's already given full testimony to his faith. Mm-hmm. He doesn't need to be baptized to give public witness, right? So that kind of breaks down there. Um, there's another reason why he needs to be baptized. The other thing is, if we look at it in terms of, the, of, the, of a, a sacramental theology, the sacrament is, is uh, defined as, as uh, you know, uh, an outward... Sorry, a, um, a a spiritual gra- a spiritual gift, uh, a visible sign of an invisible grace, right? That that we're I got there finally. <laughs> we are we're receiving something. Something's happening. Something's transpiring. And even in the Westminster Confession, right? If you read about the the sacraments in the Westminster Confession, you it's not a sacrament unless it's doing something. Um, and so. The problem with looking at baptism as my outward confession, that's the sacrament's important because of what I'm doing, not because of what God's doing. And that turns sacramental theology upside down. Not that many evangelicals would lay claim to any kind of sacramental theology, but um, it, uh, I, I think that we need to think about baptism in what God is doing for us, that it's a gift to us somehow. And um, that the, the, the sign of the water... And the sign of um, this cleansing is part of the way that God's grace comes to us. Um, so, I think there needs to be a lot of re-education, and it's hard for for it's hard for kind of fundamentalist evangelicals to to think about that because it's so kind of me-centered and it's just semi-Pelagianism, right? It's about what I do. Baptism is important because I can do something. I can will this moment. I can say something that's going to do something for me, right? I'm going to have such a great testimony <laughs> that I'll get grace. But that's not, where's God in that? Like, where is God in that understanding of baptism? Um, it's so hard, though, because it's not, like, defined. Like, like the exact purpose, the exact purpose is not fully defined, right? No, it's not. No, it's, it's... Um, and I think that's why the gift of teachers, 
becomes very important um, because some of these things aren't self-evident. And if it were all self-evident, teachers would not be necessary. Um, but um, let's, let's remember that baptism is actually important to us uh, because God does give something to us through it. Concupiscence, finally, is actually very bad. Concupiscence, says the article, has, uh, and lust has the nature of sin. Now, without going into it, what, what the Roman Catholics had come to believe was that concupiscence and lust following baptism, because in their understanding, now they had a high view of baptism, but when you're baptized as a child, it washes away all sin. And, yeah. Before you get too far, can we define concupiscence? Concupiscence is just... Is just um, uh, in intemperate desire, it's it's uh, inordinate desire for things. Um, so Augustine uses it's really kind of here. I think these words are more or less synonymous: concupiscence and lust. Augustine uses the word concupiscence quite often with respect to his libidinous youth. Um, Augustine was a sex addict. Did you say Temperance. It's a, it's, a, it's a lack of temperance, a lack of self-control. Um, generally, concupiscence in theological circles is linked with sexual, sexual hunger. So in this way, concupiscence and lust is kind of, they're, they're kind of synonymous, I think, here. Lust, lust doesn't necessarily need to be sexual, though, right? We tend to think of lust as sexual, but it's not. Lust just means desire. Lusty was actually a good word, right? If, and it's often in old theological texts, you'll see the word lusty. Do it lustily, you know? Ooh, am I supposed to do it lustily? Can I do it lustily? Am I allowed to do it lustily? What would that look like? So I think here, lust, lust may have the, the, the broader sense of desire, just uh, and, but concupiscence here, uh, it was sexual sin as it was in Augustine. So what the, what the Roman Catholics came to teach was that subsequent to baptism, these desires um, aren't sin themselves. They're just the fires in us. The fires in us that, that can lead us to temptation, but aren't necessarily sins that need to be repented of. Now, I find shades and variants of this in some popular evangelical teaching. When we say that, you know, the temptation, I, I didn't sin when I had the temptation or the thought. I just, I, you know, I, I almost sinned. I almost pushed the button. I almost took the candy, right? But, the, but it, it, that was just the, the desire in me. I didn't actually sin. But that's not what the Bible teaches. If any man looks, right? It's just, so that the, you know, the, the, well, I just, I just looked. I just took a look, right? The desire itself is sin, according to the articles. And I think the desire itself is sin, according to the Bible. So we must repent, not only of our actings, but we must repent of our wrong wantings before God. Um, and, that, you know, that's, I think, very crucial that we, we do learn as a church as we think about these things and the severity and significance of sin, that we are repenting every day, even if it's just a form, like you know, even if it's just as a form at night, 
Um, I don't think there's, you know, um, been a night since I've been a Christian, one night where I haven't in, knelt either on my knees or in my heart in bed before I go to sleep to, to pray. Um, you know, we pray through the day. I, 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 I want to talk with you at some point about, about morning prayer. Um, but, you know, at the close of the day, to say to God, I'm committing myself. Sleep is very vulnerable, right? When we go to sleep. Have you ever felt that? What are you giving yourself up to? You're just kind of letting go, right? It's a very vulnerable state. And I think of all times, you just kind of, you know, your mind is all this weird stuff as you're sleeping. It, it, uh, and, you know, the older, the older Luther was kind of terrified of sleep. He was terrified of it because he was a, he he knew that that's where the devil lurked um, in in his dreams, um, and he he had he had these um, Luther had these these spiritual attacks in his bed in his sleep. But I I I when I go to sleep I I need in my own heart to commit my soul and my body to God and to say, you know I surrender to you. I pray for his divine protection. But then it's also the moment where I can say at least in a form. Father, forgive me my sins this day, for they are many. I need to admit that before God at the end of the day. And even better, I need to say that not only have I done things that I shouldn't have done, but I've wanted things that I shouldn't have wanted. And that it can conclude like that, you know, your neighbor sent to Gehenna, you know, or something. Like, I've wanted to kill my neighbor. Or I've wanted to... I've doubted you. I've not trusted you. I've... And, and, you know, I think, I think, as a concluding thought, we need to freely understand that this lust also has to do with wanting to, to um, expunge God. If you haven't experienced that as a believer, the, the sinful self wanting to do away with God... <laughs> Because that's what the sinful heart wants to do. It wants that God not be God. That's why Luther, one of his favorite phrases, which I'm considering using for uh, our even song, let God be God. Because this, the, the, the sinful, the carnal mind is at what? Yeah, it's at war with God. What do you want to do if you're at war with someone? You want to get rid of them. And it's a, it's a frightful thing as a believer to experience this, this carnal nature still present within us wanting to get rid of God. <laughs> wanting to get rid of His laws. I wish your laws didn't, weren't there. Which means I wish that you weren't there. And then you, at the end of the day, you, you confess that your concupiscence is in fact very bad indeed. Not because you've acted on it. I haven't gone and speared God. By the grace of God, yeah. But the desire, the, the desire was there. I've hated God today. I've wanted things that I shouldn't have wanted. Um, that's the life of repentance. That's what Luther talks about in his ninety in his uh, in his theses. That that we we um, we practice daily repentance, right? The Lord teaches this right in this prayer. Give us this day our daily bread and. Forgive us our trespasses. Well, we have to pray for daily bread. We also have to pray daily that he would forgive us. And um, 
that's a teaching that's been lost in the church. Luther also says, you know, why do we pray that God's name is hallowed? Because we're not doing it. <laughs> we're not hallowing his name. Um, anyhow, there's a, that, that's a, 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 hopefully a helpful uh, look at how, the, how Anglicans think about sin. I love it. I, I think it's so rich and so helpful. And I'm so grateful to the Lord that we belong to a tradition that views sin rightly. Um, I'm so grateful for that. And, and uh, I, I hope that we can continue to feed upon these things. And uh, the Lord loves us. Jesus died for us. And we are precious to him. And he is sanctifying. His gospel has set us free. And he's making us into a peculiar people. He's making us better. And uh, he's going to continue the good work that he's begun in us. So let's commit our souls to the Lord tonight. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, that even though we were born into this world as enemies to God, and that we were at war with you in our hearts, Lord, that you have called us, and that you have pulled us out of this lot of humanity, and you have set your love upon us, and that you have said, I will save you from yourself. And we're so grateful for that, Lord, that in we can look back, Lord, in our past and, and see all these wrong roads that we were going down, Lord, and you seized us and you pulled us out of the miry clay and you set us upon the rock of Christ. And we praise you tonight. And we do pray, Lord, that we would be a people who understands the, the great error and the great hatefulness of sin and that we would flee from it, Lord, as Joseph fled from Potiphar's wife, that we would not want anything to do with it, Lord, that we would hate the things that you hate and that we would love the things that you love. And Lord, that we would have a heart of compassion for a world that is stuck in its sin and in its rebellion. Give us grace, Lord, to be a people who are deeply mindful of the coming day of judgment, to be ready ourselves and to want to see our, our neighbors spared, Lord, from your wrath and your damnation. And we pray, Lord, for your continuing work of grace in all of our lives, that uh, as Calvin, Lord, wrote so in such a lovely pastoral way, that day by day, Lord, even incrementally, we would grow up into your goodness and that we would see our sins drop away, Lord, uh, every day, I pray. And Lord, now may your blessing, the blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, rest upon each one of us. May your face shine upon us tonight, Lord. May you be gracious to us. Give us help to cast all of our anxieties upon you, all of our burdens upon the Lord, knowing that you care for us and that you are a good and a gracious Father. We pray that you would fill us even more with your Holy Spirit, that we might be the people you want us to be. Give us victory this week. Give us, Lord, um, uh, deliverance from the devil. Give us deeply repentant hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.